Engaging Leader Podcast Episode 60, Leading the Starbucks Way, Five Principles for Connecting with Your Customers, Your Products, and Your People, featuring Joseph Michelli. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. Before we get into today's topic, I have two quick announcements for you. First, If you're the type who pays attention to details, you may have noticed that this episode is numbered wrong. It should be number 59, but we're calling it number 60. That's because I made a mistake and got the numbers wrong on the next three episodes, which we've already recorded. So we have no choice but to fake it for now, and then when we reach number 64, we'll be back on the right numbers. Until then, we'll just have to channel our inner Paul McCartney and dream about when I'm 64. And second, as you may be aware, we are trying out some new theme music for Engaging Leader. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Let us know by taking a very short survey at engagingleader.com forward slash music. All right, let's get into today's content. Starbucks has become one of the best recognized and admired brands in the world. It's recognized as being one of the world's most effectively led and admired companies. And yet, a few years ago, it seemed they had lost their way. The customer experience had become mediocre, and they had to close hundreds of stores. But in 2008, Howard Schultz returned to the helm as CEO and implemented a transformation agenda. And today, Starbucks is back on top in terms of profitability, popularity, and downright love from its customers. In fact, with this episode, I'm scoring extra points with my wife, Erin, who is a true fan of Starbucks and has been known to drive many miles out of the way to get a hazelnut latte. I like Starbucks too, but she goes above and beyond there. So how do leaders at Starbucks help shepherd and lead their people to build customer engagement, loyalty, advocacy, even brand love? How do they model and inspire excellence in product delivery and creating moments of authentic service and just a, a contagious love and passion for what the company is about, for coffee and for the social conscience behind the coffee? Well, our guest today is Dr. Joseph Michelli. He has spent the majority of his life following his true north, and he's, which is all about helping people be of greater service to one another. He's written several books on world-class companies like Zappos, the Ritz-Carlton, and this is actually his second book on Starbucks. Dr. Joseph Michelli, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thank you, Jesse. It's a pleasure to be here. Joseph, this is actually your second book on Starbucks. You've written some books about other well-known companies like Zappos. Why did Starbucks, why were they worth coming back to with the whole second book? Well, you know, it could very well be that I just needed to get it right after doing it wrong the first time. But in truth, (laughs) we had such a great amount of success with the first book. And, you know, it's one of those stories. It's you you just kind of revisit. I mean, I started this in 2004, my first book published actually in 2006. 
but the universe of 2004 to you know when this book releases in 2013 is huge in the life of a company like Starbucks where they went through a you know a meteoric rise a, a down cycle the transformation plan and now a kind of view to the future where they continue to to engage customers and new product innovations and a global strategy what makes you the right person to write a book about Starbucks? Well, the fact that they said yes probably is part <laughs> of it. But, but the truth of the matter is I've worked with lots of brands over my career in just one principal area, which is leading customer-centric businesses. So um, this is about as good as it gets from the standpoint of a, a brand that understands you have to create an experience around a customer. Um, so they are a fit for me. I'm right now working on a new book that'll be out in 2015 with Mercedes-Benz, where we're really looking at how do we elevate the dealership experience. And that's based on a couple of years of consulting that I'll be doing with them uh, before the book is released in 2015. So, you know, the, the part of this is just you get the opportunities to do a lot of consulting, you get inside of companies, and then you get the opportunities to write about companies as well. So that's how it works for me. For some people from the outside, it was clear that there were problems in the early 2000s with Starbucks. And I've heard at least one person say, looking back now, that they've returned to profitability and success. Well, the whole key there was VIA. And I just, from the very first time I heard that, I thought, well, it's, there was a lot more than just a single innovation that made the difference. If you had to say in a nutshell, what, what has made the difference? Why, what was different about the company from 2006 to 2008 or so? I think VIA is an example of what went right, uh, but it is not the silver bullet that made it transform. And, you know, VIA is this micro ground coffee, which you know, it's completely the opposite of what Starbucks talked about for the longest time, right? So all of a sudden now they're in the the kind of freeze-dried is the way we might have called it a long time ago. Um, they're in a coffee space that they really did not typically want to be in. At least it appeared they didn't want to be in in the early days. But I think they saw the wisdom if they could get the product quality right that the mobility of that product, the ability to have customers use your product wherever the customers are. I climbed a 14,000 foot peak this last year and I opened up my packet of Via and I poured it into not so warm a water, but I was able to toast my victory uh, thanks to Via and be a part of my beloved brand, Starbucks. Um, that was kind of the ultimate wisdom play of that is they met the customer where they were. But, but that's such a small part of what they did. I mean, mobilizing the connection is one of the principles I talk about in the book, and that, you know, VIA fits into that category. Um, but, but there's so many other things. I mean, they understood technology. They, they realized they had to become more of a tech company than they had ever thought about being before. And I think the biggest thing, really, um, is that they, they were not that great operators, and they would admit it. Um, I talked to their CFO, Troy Alsted, about it, and he would tell you, straight up that they they got by with a lot of sloppy operational business. And I think the downturn in the economy really caused them to focus more on what it would take to to be lean and mean and be able to to deliver a great experience, but but not with the waste that they had in the system. I want to get into some of the principles that you teach about in, in the book here. But, but before that, there's one thing about Starbucks that's Interesting, but almost it's easy to feel cynical about. And it's this fact that their baristas are called partners. At a lot of companies, they, they seem to have gotten creative at coming up with a name other than 
employees. Has that really made a difference at Starbucks to call them partners? Well, and it's it goes beyond calling them that. And I take some time in the book to try to unpack this. You know, I, there are people who are called associates, but nobody in leadership associates with them. Uh, people <laughs> are called team members, but you don't see leaders, you know, associating with them either and being part of a team. You know, it's it's top down driven. Um, and at Wall, you know, at Starbucks, they do call them partners, and and functionally they are. They do have bean stock. They have stock options, if you will. So performance of the of the mothership Starbucks does relate to the the financial benefit of the employee. Um, so because of that, I really think that that it fits. Obviously, a true partnership would mean that the employee has some risk if the if the company doesn't do well. I don't think that's in, inherent in this model, but but there is an upside to uh, enhancing the success of Starbucks if you are an employee slash partner. When we hear Starbucks employees talk about the company, they use words like love and passion and romance, and they actually mean it. I mean, what, there's a real difference there in how Starbucks think about their company, what they do, who they serve. What, why is that so different from other companies? Well, and, and this is one of those kind of hopefully tangible takeaways to your listeners. I think that a lot of leaders I know stay away from words like that. They get really uncomfortable getting in the emotional space of business. You know, a lot of business schools did not teach the emotional value of products or services or even emotional value of culture. So I understand why a lot of leaders stay away from it. If if I had one thing to do over earlier on in my career, I would have been more of a student of emotional value. Um, once I got into it and I really started to appreciate it, it helped me understand that not everything is just a byproduct of your benefits and attributes of product. A lot of what causes people to buy, in fact, probably more than we would care to admit, if when we're talking about ourselves anyway, the reasons we buy stuff, um, push comes to shove. If the benefits and attributes are equal, if the price and the value proposition seems con- you know somewhat consistent between two products, the final decision comes out of an emotional connection to the product that's often driven by human and personal relationships. So I think those baristas that you're talking about love the brand because there's been a huge investment in the personal relationships between the store managers and themselves. The store managers have had a personal relationship with the district managers and it cascades all the way up to the top of the organization and Howard Schultz is about as interpersonally gifted a human being as you'll ever find and about as visionary a person as you'll ever find and if you can get those two things bottled into one place you have a pretty dynamic business if you can't find them in one person you probably should try to create a leadership team that has some of those dimensions hmm. Now, you spent, in preparation for this book, over 500 hours conducting research on Starbucks and interviews, and you boiled it all down to five principles, and I'd like to walk through those one at a time. The first that you spent several chapters of the book explaining about is savor and elevate. What does that mean? Well, you know, if I'm a business leader, the big the big takeaway for me on this is that you know we can be convinced by a lot of folks out there that we can sell anything, whether we like what we sell or not. If we have the right sales techniques, if we have the right you know, understanding of manufacturing and distribution, we could hate our product and still be successful. This whole concept at Starbucks is that you might be successful over the short term, but unless you really help the people inside of your business understand the nuances, kind of fall in love 
love with the product itself so that they can savor it and enjoy it, then it's very hard to sustain and intrigue your customers to want to have a relationship. And you also can't upsell them, cross-sell them, teach them all about the nuances of new product if you can't get them engaged. So this is a lot about going back to your products, trying to have your people get an emotional connection to those products so they can sell them well. You know, just to stay with my hiking example, if I were to go to um, some of the big box sporting goods stores and, you know, go to the section on hiking gear, um, I can assure you that most of them have no idea. Most of the people who would sell those products have no idea about those products and could not get me excited about anything that they would know and certainly couldn't get me to buy something I don't already know about. Now, if you if I go to some of the high-end hiking stores where they really love their products, they've gone to trade shows, the salespeople, they know what's about to come out, and they can cross-sell me left and right. One of the ideas that you talk about in that section has to do with corporate rituals. And in Star- Starbuck has a, a number of examples of those. The one that caught my attention the most are coffee tastings. Can you talk about what that's all about and why corporate rituals would be an important part of Savor and Elevate? Yeah, well, in my case, you know, if I would go to a meeting, say, with Cliff Burroughs, who's the president of Starbucks Americas, he would not start a meeting with me until he offered me a French press cup of coffee and, and we would do the French press and we'd savor that coffee. And this happens all the way through the corporate headquarters. It happens at the store level. When a new hire comes on, the manager sits with them and shares coffee and they talk about coffee and they experience all kinds of new coffees when they first hire on. Um, To me, the end of the day, it says, look, we're going to start our meetings with coffee. It's going to be central to who we are. Um, You see this in other brands. Panera does a lot with bread. But but I just think you get to an understanding that this is who we are. This is how we do things and what we are and how we do them integrates directly with a ritual around our product. So how could other companies implement some sort of corporate ritual? Well, I think, you know, the beginning point of this is to decide you're going to do something regularly over and over and over again. I mean, ritual is like, if we think of Christian rituals, you know, there's certain, uh, certain things that you do on a regular basis as part of that worship. And the same is true with other faith traditions. Um, and, and, and the same is true with business. If you look at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company that I, I preview, they do daily lineups. They take a concept from culinary, which is the lineup, the food prep lineup. They've converted it into an entire hospitality concept and everywhere from senior leadership all the way through the organization they do daily lineup and you know 20 minutes a day they're talking about their culture they're talking about wow stories they're talking about their their gold standards so you know you kind of have to figure out what it is is your sweet spot but you got to do something consistently that i think brings people into a greater understanding of your products or at least your who you are um, at the powerful why of your business so it could be something that it happens every day or every shift, uh, or it could be maybe only once a month or once a quarter or once a year, just depending Absolutely. on what's appropriate. Absolutely. And some things you do once a year, you know, some of the rituals with customers at Starbucks include things like the red cups at Christmas season. That is an annual ritual and people look forward to it. It does engage the customer base. Um, But yeah, corporate things could be daily and they could just be a motivational thought for the day or sharing a, a wow story twice a week. The second principle is love to be loved. What's that about? 
<laughs> well, this kind of gets into that emotional value discussion that we were talking about just a little bit earlier. Uh, this notion that we need to be trusted advisors or trust is enough, I just kind of challenge it in the book a little bit. Um, clearly, you, satisfaction is not enough. We know that. Uh, being viewed as having integrity gets you closer to trust. But you know, most of us really want customers who are passionate about us, who advocate on our behalf, who are not just loyal and can't be cherry-picked off by somebody at a lower price, but who genuinely are out there talking to their family and friends, kind of the, the ultimate question that Fred Reichelt talks about in the, and is the source of the Net Promoter Score. So I think what we're trying to get at here is what does it take to elevate your brand to the point of passion? And often it takes the actions of the brand ex- stepping into the life of the customer in a loving way that looks at the customer as a life cycle phenomenon, not just a transaction. So what's something practical that you would do to put that into action? Certainly. I, I'll take one outside of, of Starbucks in this case. I'll, I'll take something from my Zappos book. But um, you know, one of the practical things is when people call in and they want shoes at Zappos and the company doesn't have them in inventory, rather than saying to the customer, um, look, you know, we'll take your credit card. We'll take your credit card, and then not notifying the customer it wasn't in inventory until you get your email like an hour later. <laughs> I mean, they immediately check for the inventory. They know they don't have it. They apologize to you, and they immediately look to the competitor. And they, if they can find the shoes at a competitor, they will send you the link to a competitor, along with the service recovery coupon that says on your next purchase you get blank percent off. And, and that's a very practical example of how to love to be loved because what ends up happening there, interestingly enough, is those coupons are redeemed in an inordinate levels relative to typical standards. So all these extra people are actually coming back to you even though you didn't have the product for them. You failed them. But you extended them a, a token of love, if you will, to help them find what they needed. And they returned by coming and actually wanting to do business with you, despite the fact that they could have deemed you completely incompetent. So there's a bit of a golden rule principle, or this, this is sort of a golden rule principle, I guess, where you're doing to other people what you would like to have done to you. I think you extend. Yeah, I'll go into that. I think you extend even maybe a little more trust than you think people deserve. Um, and then in what you recoup from that is extra trust. Um, obviously, you have to be careful about your margins and what you're dealing. But, you know, frequently, the Zappos example, just take it slightly differently. You know, you might buy 10 pairs of shoes. They ship them to you. You decide one is right and they're gonna, you're going to ship them back. And you call them and tell them that. And guess what they do? They say, well, well good. We'll credit your account right now even before you send them back. Well, let's get real. I mean, if you never send them back, they're going to actually recharge your card, right? Mm -hmm. But for that moment in time, you go, wow, I mean, they've extended me trust I didn't deserve. I haven't even sent them back yet. And so what you get from that is this sense of if they're going to trust me that much, then they themselves must be trustworthy. That is, that's a great example. In the book, you talk about sometimes that can be very challenging to do as a leader, but the way you love your employees is going to be representative of how they then extend that love to customers. So you talk about in the book some of the grappling that leaders need to do with what's the virtuous thing to do or what's the moral thing to do in any given situation. But that's ultimately what you want your customers to do too. So for example, when Starbucks was facing all the financial problems, they didn't actually cut back on their benefits or their stock option program. 
Right, because that was promised to not be affected, right? Mm -hmm. So Howard goes out and says, you know, we're going to face a lot of stuff here, but here's something you don't have to worry about. Well, he had to live up to that. He did live up to that, but so many brands don't. Now, I also point out really clearly that they let people go during Mm -hmm. that time. So it wasn't as though it was such a happy go, you know, happy skippy thing. They were able to protect (laughs) everything. They couldn't protect everything. They claimed this is what was going to be protected, and they protected it. They had to make many other hard decisions in the context of that. And people can debate back and forth whether that was the right decision or not. But at the end of the day, it is right at least to the degree that you make a promise to somebody and then you deliver against that promise. And I think if you do that, your your employees are more likely to deliver against the promises that your brand makes to their customers. So, you know, it's it, it, these are difficult leadership decisions. Anybody who's run a company and I run a small company, you have these massive numbers of hard decisions. But if you're going to say something, you better stand behind it. Um, and because your people are watching, they're just always watching. Yeah, I'm I'm reminded of a story you tell in the book about how a Starbucks barista was building a relationship, connecting personally with a customer to the point that he even wrote on the customer's cup a message for the customer's wife who had never come to Starbucks. And after several years, she finally met him and had talked about how she'd become such a huge fan of his and had shared a whole bunch on Facebook. And later he said, well, I really didn't think I was doing anything special. I was just playing my part in, in Starbucks culture by you know making these personal connections. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is a job, personal connections and uplifting moments. And he was making uplifting moments with a person he never met, but the husband was buying a drink for himself and buying a drink for his wife. And so he just started sending messages home to the wife via the cup. And then she would send the messages back to him. And then she would share the questions that he would ask on the cup with people on her Facebook page. And, and there was a social viral engagement of people that weren't even involved in their, you know, their pseudo relationship. It, yeah, he didn't think he was doing anything different, but he'd been chosen because he was somebody by nature who could do that. And if I were going to talk leadership strategy, I mean, I'd be spending a lot more time selecting people for their service talent if I'm in a service business. Starbucks does it really well. Almost every business that is excellent at this that I've had the good fortune to write about does it. Um, and, and once they select those people, then they train them and they keep reminding them constantly that their job is to create uplifting moments in the case of Starbucks. I'm using their phrase here. And he did it. He uplifting. He created all kinds of uplifting per- per- moments for a person he never actually was face to face with. But it started with loving. I mean, he, he was building a connection with that customer. And when you think about when you go and visit a Starbucks store, they're busy. It's not like, I can't imagine this guy was just looking around for something to do. And so went and started talking to this customer because he was bored and then found out about his wife. I mean, they only have a, a minute or so to be interacting with people. And But over time, he was kind of just basically living out the way he'd been treated, a company that was taking interest in him. So he's taking an interest in the customers. Absolutely. And and your point's really well taken. Loving on a person doesn't take hours in a mass retail setting. It, it takes the ability to meet them with eye contact, it, you know, if they're regular to get to know their name. I mean, Starbucks is asking for names now more and more and putting names on cups as a, as a strategy globally. But forgetting that, I mean, it's really knowing somebody's name. It's knowing their preferred drink. If this person comes in every day and gets a drink for himself and somebody else, you know, why not on one of those occasions say, well, who's the other person that you keep getting this drink for? Do they exist. And then he finds out it's his wife. And the next time he comes in, the guy's thinking, uh, maybe I'll just jot just this quick note to the wife. And then it starts to become interactive and it's self-sustaining, right? I mean, when she starts writing back, 
now it's kind of this playful pen pal on a cup thing. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think we make this so complicated. Um, clearly, you don't want people standing in line having a chit-chat best friend relationship in a Starbucks. Uh, but you do want them to read the need state of the guest and deliver something that could potentially be uplifting for that guest. Sometimes it's just uplifting if you just get it to me really quickly when I'm in a rush. Mm-hmm. Well, the third principle that you talk about in the book t- that Starbucks applies to achieve dynamic growth and lasting success, reach for common ground. Yeah, Starbucks has missed the mark in some countries. Hadn't done really well in Europe. You know, it's uh, it's had some challenges there. Australia was not a great success story because they were ardently independent and they had some local brands and they got in late. I mean, the company has learned though because it nails it in other countries like China. And and I think what you see is that they're much smarter now than when I met them in 2004 about how they did their global. You know, nowadays they really have partners on the ground. They spend far more time understanding the consistent truths of the human condition that translate through the Starbucks condition, Starbucks experience. And then they spend a lot more time understanding the uniqueness of a culture and allowing the brand to to morph. Even some of the Key elements like the way espresso, you know, a, a latte is made, for example, in the United States, it's not being made that way in parts of Europe because it just didn't play as well. And that they would have never changed that formula in 2006. Wow. Well, I have to say a bit of an aside here. In this section, in chapter six, you had me at the quote. Uh, you were, I think this is maybe the only book that I've read that quotes one of my favorite economists, Thomas Sowell. And the uh, quote is, all things are the same except for the differences and different except for the similarities. But just by quoting uh, Thomas Sowell, a fantastic guy, you, you won, scored a lot of points in my book. I always like to quote people that I, I can't even fully understand because they're <laughs> just too bright. So uh, it makes you sound smarter. <laughs> well, this, this sort of relates to a question that we got in from one of our listeners. Um, it's, the question is about lean, but the way that I think Starbucks approaches lean gets to some of this um, more of a grassroots level. The question uh, comes in from Michelle, and she's asking about, it's kind of long, so let me just summarize by saying she's noticing that Starbucks has has applied lean manufacturing principles to their operations, and it seems at the same time you've, you see McDonald's doing a lot of similar things, but it's it's come out inherently different at Starbucks. So what? how has Starbucks applied lean in a, in, a, in a sort of their own unique way? Well, that is an awesome question. And frankly, if you if you look at it, I, I actually quote somebody in the book who was very involved uh, from, from the early foundations of, of lean and has worked with Starbucks in the, in the manifestation of lean. And he actually does a head-to-head comparison in the book between the way Starbucks does it and the way that McDonald's does it. I will try to paraphrase him. Um, In essence, McDonald's wants to do lean so that everything is absolutely consistent, which which totally works with a business strategy around service. Service should be predictable and reliable. If you're trying to do an experiential um, business strategy, you don't want everything to be exactly the same. You want to have the operational foundation to be the same, but you want to be able to customize to need. Uh, now, if you're in a really high-end business, you need to personalize to need, and that gets to, you know, everybody is different. But customizing is more like, you know, segmented uh, reactions. Well, bottom line, Starbucks has done 
done lean to make repeatable processes so that you get your products exactly the way you should get them, but also to assure that you do not boilerplate the end experience, which is a very hard way to do lean in a way, but it is, I think, the highest level of the of the game. Uh, you know, the strategy to just manufacture the same product over and over again where you've got the same raw material and you're trying to create a, a you know, a perfect outcome that's really different than the strategy where the raw material coming in is varied, which is what the human condition is. We get such different kinds of raw material. We have to impose a consistent, repeatable process that minimizes waste and maximizes value. And the output should be a customer who feels they had not only good quality of product, but also experienced an uplifting moment. So you'd probably have to read it because I don't think I can synopsize it that quickly. But um, hopefully that gives you a distinction. Well, it does. And in the book, you also, you talk, part of what was different, I think, is you talked about how maybe even more so than most lean implementation, Starbucks had to involve the frontline partners, if you will, the part, the frontline employees and, and baristas, because not only were they trying to become more efficient and get waste out, but basically they wanted to, number one, ma- make the barista's job easier so they had those more, you know, a minute here, a minute there to build connections with with customers, but also create, allow there to be this local flavor because of the strong community component that Starbucks. So that, is, am I summarizing that right? No, that's totally great. And, and one of my favorite quick examples on that is if, you, if you're going to do iced tea at McDonald's, they're going to have a machine that's going to be able to deliver it in seconds, and that's part of the overall lean production of the drink. At Starbucks, they're going to try to do a theatrical presentation, so they're going to do a shaken tea. And in the example, uh, one of the examples in the book using lean, what they noted about the shaken tea is they'd given an instruction that says, you know, shake it for 10 seconds. And that instruction was not something that was producing consistent and reliable output. So as they worked through the lean process, they were able to determine a more effective instruction, which was to shake it 10 times. Because 10 seconds is a concept that not everybody can hold exactly the same, but count, you know, counting to 10 is something most of us can do exactly the same. Ah, that's, yeah, that's perfect. Well, let's reach for common ground. Number four out of the five is mobilize the connection. We talked about it a little bit with Via. I won't get too far back into that, but I, I can tell you a lot of it is the mobile app um, and the awareness. When I went to Starbucks in 2004, I, I talked to the senior leadership about, well, why don't you do a loyalty program? You know, like, why don't you give the 13th drink away for the first 12 purchased? And they looked at me like, because that would dilute the value of the first 12. Um, <laughs> and, you know, now you look at them and, and they built the loyalty program really strongly. They put it into a mobile app. They have a closed loop system. It's also a payment uh, mechanism. So basically, if I have, if somebody gives me a gift card, I can convert it into a loyalty card by just registering it online. If I go on to actually attach my account to it, now I've got a funding mechanism that my loyalty card uses. Now they can track my purchases. I can get my 13th drink free. And I've got a mobile app where I don't even have to bring out my wallet because I'm paying mobily. Uh, the point is they're, they're connecting through the, with the customer through the customer's mobile device. That's one way they mobilize the connection. They're also finding more and more product that they can insert into the life of the customer wherever the customer is, such as VIA, uh, but also all the home brewing equipment. That's also moving 
many much of their product in the consumer product goods category in addition to the brewed beverage category. So they're getting collateral new product uh, lines and they're also being able to put those product lines in supermarkets, in drive-throughs, in you know all kinds of locations, in you know convenience stores. So um, yeah, I, I think that's what it's all about in a nutshell. And, I, and the takeaway for any business leader is wherever you're successful now, you got to start thinking about where your customers are and what kinds of innovations do you need to take the essence of your product or adjacent products into the spaces of the customer's life. You know, my wife Erin showed me her gold uh, rewards card that she got from Starbucks and how she got certain perks from that. And I just scoffed because that's all I need is one more card to have to carry around. I hate I, I hate carrying cards around. In fact, I don't even, I have my, my iPhone and my wallet is in one combined thing, so I just have to carry one thing around. And so I actually kind of teased her about it and how, you know, that's not, that wouldn't make me go to Starbucks more. Well, then when I found out that they had a mobile app version of it, so it all just existed on my iPhone and, uh, and I don't really have to keep track of how many I got it just sort of, as I go to pay for it, it's like, oh, you just got one free. Boom. I mean, that, that, those were just such simple ways to take advantage of technology to build a deeper relationship with me. Just amen to that. And that's the whole strategy. And that's principle four. And then the last one is cherish and challenge your legacy. Yeah. Well, this is, uh, this is, I I, got to be very careful with this because people have taken it in a couple of different ways. You know, bottom line, you got to stand for something in business today. You know, know, we, we have all these businesses that try to be everything to everybody and they're just vanilla and they have no personality and they're soulless and they wonder why they don't have loyalty. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I think long ago in the first Starbucks book, I said, you know, there's, I love Starbucks websites and there are, I hate Starbucks websites. You probably won't find either of those kind of websites for subway. Right. I mean, there's some brands that are just so pleasantly neutral and, and they appeal to a lot of people, but, but they don't get passion behind them. So a legacy stage, I think, is really saying we stand for something. We want to have something that lasts, and we will take a stand. So in Howard Schultz's case, for example, he took a full-page ad out in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal around the last election cycle, really encouraged you know other business leaders to not send money into the political campaigns because they were just pandering and they were not trying to increase the jobs in America, and instead to invest money in a program that he was doing that would help small businesses get jobs. He also did that with customers. They also had these indivisible armbands where customers could pay $5, get this armband, and they were essentially funding this seed money for small business growth. Those kinds of positions got you know some ugly comments from shareholders who wondered why they were entering in any dialogue about a political you know, a political issue. But at the end of the day, people are gravitate to that. Whether you agree with the cause, you don't agree with the cause, at least you know the brand has some personality, some kind of soul. And there's a lot of affinity from people who care to see passion and are passionate themselves. So that's part of what I think of a legacy. And it's not just always doing things that sound good or you send a check. But where you really have some tactical business ideas. The reason Starbucks wants to increase jobs for the future in youth isn't all just good and fine. It's also self-serving. If you want to buy a $4 cup of coffee, you better have a job. And so the notion that they're trying to be thoughtful about a social cause, but it also interfaces with their long-term business strategy, just makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so it's a two-phase principle where, one, you, you do have to stay focused on profitability. You, you have, for example, shareholders that are investing with you and expecting you to do good things with their money. 
but also to figure out what you stand for, how you can make a substantial difference through the work that you're doing. And that's different than just what you see from a lot of companies where they basically just take a big chunk of their budget and give it away to certain charities. And, and you definitely have to question, is that really what your shareholders want? If, if so, why wouldn't they just go make donations themselves to those charities? Amen. And you know, it's the interesting thing about what you say, you have to make the money, right? So Howard Schultz gets a lot of headroom to make decisions on what he's going to do with social cause issues because he makes the money. I mean, if you're not making the money in the front end and then you're getting involved in kind of controversial social issues, then you're not going to be there. Um, but he gets, you know, he, he, you should go to a shareholders meeting at Starbucks. I mean, at the end of those meetings, people jump up and say all kinds of things that they disagree with about how Starbucks is doing its social policy. And Howard's comments gently most of the time are, you've entrusted me to run this business, to be able to make sure our people are taken care of. Some of these decisions you disagree with are solely so that our people are cared about. Um, and we're going to continue to stand behind that because that's the engine for our success and that's the engine of your profitability. Uh, you know, and until such time that they're not being profitable, I think Howard Schultz will be the CEO of uh, Starbucks. Well, the book is Leading the Starbucks Way, Five Principles for Connecting with Your Customers, Your Products, and Your People. We've talked about savor and elevate, love to be loved, reach for common ground, mobilize the connection, and cherish and challenge your legacy. Joseph, how can people find out more about this book and about the work that you're doing? Well, it should be. I always consider if you can find it at a bookstore, it's a good bookstore. So it should be (laughs) in any good bookstore. Uh, And, you know, in addition to that, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and 800 CEO read online are always good book suppliers. And you can easily find out about it there. Uh, You can find out about my work just by knowing my name, basically, J-O-S-C-P-H, Joseph, M-I-C-H. E-L-L-I, so josephmichelli.com, and um, we have a lot of information on there about the books and the other things that we do, but I could not tell you how happy I am to have been on today, and frankly, you know, we do a lot of interviews as authors, and oftentimes people have never read our books, and so Jesse, it's it's a delight. I've looked at your website and spent time on your website. The value proposition you're doing for leaders is just extraordinary, and knowing that, we said resoundingly yes, that we'd want to be a part of it, and I am more than delighted that I had this opportunity. Joseph, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. Well, and thanks for joining us on the Engaging Leader podcast. My pleasure. All right, leaders, we will put Joseph's contact information on our show notes for this page, including his Twitter ID and LinkedIn URL. And then also we've got a link to his website at leadingthestarbucksway.com forward slash resources that has some cool videos on there. So we'll put a link to those in the show notes as well. As we wrap up today, I want to make sure you noticed our new theme music. And if you haven't yet done so, please let us know what you think about it, the theme music that kicks off and ends each of our podcasts. Throughout the month of October 2013, we're running an online survey to see if you like it or don't like it. And you can find that at engagingleader.com forward slash music. While you're online, uh, you can find the show notes for today at engagingleader.com forward slash 60, as in episode 60. And also, we'd be happy to take any of your other comments or questions. And if you want to leave an audio message, we would be happy to include you in a future conversation. So if you've got a comment or question about this episode, a past episode, or one of our upcoming shows, you can leave an audio message by either calling us in the U.S. at 989-787-0060 
or go to engagingleader.com and click on the record voicemail button. Of course, you can email me your comments or questions at jesse at engagingleader.com or connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Engaging Leader is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.